In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gracious gift of your word. We pray, Lord, that this morning it would be faithfully preached, that all who hear would hear your word speak. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the scene of our gospel text this morning was set for us last week when Jesus was asked to read from the scroll of Isaiah in synagogue. Now, this is the first public record Luke gives us of Jesus' public ministry, and it takes place after he turned water into wine back in Cana of Galilee. By this point in time, Jesus was gaining some notoriety both as a preacher and a prophet. When Luke tells us in chapter 4, verse 20, that Jesus sat down after the reading, we're probably to understand that he sat in what was known as the seat of Moses, which is where the rabbi would sit to expound on the reading. Now, we're not given a transcript of Jesus' teaching, but we know from last week that it was, not on the, it was on the good news of Isaiah chapter 61. Good news to the poor, healing broken hearts, setting prisoners free and proclaiming the year of Jubilee. It must have been an exciting and joyful sermon because our text today tells us all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. But at some point, the sermon takes a dark turn and the village of Nazareth attempts to throw Jesus off the cliff. So what in the world happened? Well, if we take a trip back to Isaiah 61, we would see good news preached by the prophet to Israel. And for Israel. As Father West reminded us last week, this passage comes in the middle of an otherwise bleak message to God's people. And in the midst of Israel's failings is a promise of restoration and good news. Those who mourn will receive a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And these are the promises, Jesus says, are being fulfilled in his audience's hearing. So you can imagine the gracious words. Under Roman occupation, right? The yoke of Caesar, all the taxes and all the politics, the year of the Lord's favor is finally at hand. Praise God. But we can also see the hesitation. It all sounds great, but this is Joseph's son, right? He couldn't really declare such a fulfillment, could he? Well, Jesus is aware of the growing doubt in the room, and he says, Doubtless, you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, cure yourself. And this is followed by, 
exposing his audience's desire to see some sort of sign to back up his prophetic claim. A sign like they had heard that he had performed back there in Cana of Galilee, in Capernaum. And here, Jesus is actually prophesying of his death. When the day of his death comes, the doctor will seem powerless to cure himself, to escape death. This is actually fulfilled at the end of Luke's gospel, and he records all of those watching and observing his crucifixion as saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Well, the irony in that scene is that the very thing they're mocking him for, that he isn't saving himself, is what is needed for their own salvation. And like the Nazarenes, all they saw was a regular old Jewish kid preaching God's good news. Which is why he says next, Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. Now, the statement in itself would not have been contentious to Jesus' audience, the prophets of, old, of the Old Testament were notoriously uh, ridiculed and persecuted and even murdered by their own people. But those were the old stories, right? And it's been generations since we've seen any prophet here in Israel. Those backward-thinking ancestors were the ones who killed the prophets, not us. We would never do such a thing. But here's where things get ugly. In the next few verses, Jesus brings up the Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Now, if you're not familiar with these stories, they can be found in 1 and 2 Kings in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 17 gives us the story of Elijah the prophet who had predicted a drought. And during the drought, the Lord told Elijah to go to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there would be a widow there who would take care of him. And in that story, God miraculously provides for both Elijah and the widow until the drought ends. The book of 2 Kings chapter 5 gives us the story of Naaman, the leper, who was sent to Elisha for healing. In in reluctant obedience to the prophet, Naaman washed in the Jordan and was miraculously healed. And these are the stories that Jesus refers to in verses 25 through 27. And they are what enrages the Nazarene community. But why? Why is this so offensive? These are just stories, right? What do they have to do with our reading today? Well, the first thing I think we need to understand about these stories is that they tell of God extending his grace to Gentiles. The widow in the story of Elijah was not Jewish. And there were plenty of Jewish widows, Jesus says, in that day who could have used God's provision during that drought. But we're given a story of God providing for a 
Gentile widow. In the same way, Naaman was a Syrian, which means he was a Gentile as well. And not only this, but Naaman had enslaved a Jewish girl who, by the way, was the one who told, Eli- told Naaman to go see Elisha for his healing. So for Jesus to tell these stories in this context was to liken his audience to the Israelite widows and lepers who did not receive God's miraculous provision and healing. And furthermore, those in Capernaum had received the good news that the Nazarenes were now rejecting. So if they had mixed feelings about Jesus before this, they had made up their mind. This guy needs to be thrown from a cliff. But why did Jesus do this? Did he not love his neighbors as he would soon teach his disciples to? Was he ashamed of his backwoods community and wanted to let them have it? I don't think so. In fact, in this passage, I think it's full of clues throughout that indicate Jesus' love for his hometown. In my meditations on this passage this week, I kept coming back to this phrase. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words coming from his mouth. Spoke. Words. Mouth. The transmission of words from mouth to ear. From person to person, from heart to heart. It's all throughout this passage. He began to say to them, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He said to them, you will say, we have heard, I tell you. And here I'm reminded of John's prologue, that in the beginning was the word. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Not just the Jewish people, but Jesus' fellow Nazarenes did not receive him. Here we have the word of God, the Logos, in the flesh, whose gracious words are pouring from his mouth to his own beloved people. Do you see the irony here? That God in flesh is verbally and audibly speaking what? Good news to his people. The year of Jubilee is here. Who cares about signs? Who cares about the hard-hearted hearts of our ancestors? God is declaring the year of his favor to who? To those he loves. So what are we to do with this? What is the message of this passage to us this morning? Well, there are two things I think that we need to consider, and the first is this. The good news of the gospel is for everyone. 
This means that we should not be surprised to see God working in Capernaum. It's easy for Christians to assume, I think, that we're the only recipients of God's grace. Or that when good things happen to us, it's because God loves us. But if we see God do good things to those unbelievers out there in the world, well, that's some kind of coincidence. But remember what Jesus says in just a couple chapters later in the Gospel of Luke. He said he was not sent to those who have no need of a physician, but to the sick. In other words, God is at work in the world. And you and I have this gospel, this, this great treasure, and we are to steward it to everyone around us. Sure, God does great and mighty works within the church, but he is inviting us to join him out there in his work, to bring this good news to the captive, to the brokenhearted, and to the poor. So let's not be like the Nazarenes and act like the year of Jubilee is so precious that it's just for you and me. Because if we do that, we risk rejecting the one who was won for us so great a salvation. So the good news of the gospel is for everyone. But the second thing is this. We always have Jesus. We really have no need for signs. This week I sat across from a friend who told me a remarkable story about surviving an awful car accident. And I was at the edge of my seat listening to the numerous miracles and encounters with the Lord that he had throughout his recovery. Why aren't I having visions and dreams? Don't get me wrong, I don't want to go through that, but I want to hear the voice of God. Doesn't he love me just as he loves my friend? You see, I can envy your walk with Jesus. Your discipleship with the Lord seems so much more exciting than mine. And I can get so worried about the amazing things that God is doing over there in Galilee or back here in Evergreen or all the way over there in Ethiopia. But when it comes to my plain old boring life, all I got are gracious words coming from the mouth of Jesus. Now I hope that last statement shocked you a little. Because that is what is ironic in our synagogue scene today. What you and I really want and what we really need is not a spectacular sign, but the thing that the sign is constantly pointing to, Jesus Christ himself. The signs are a means to the end. So don't mistake, make the mistake of thinking that your baptism was somehow insufficient. That the plain old boring Christian life that you're living is somehow insignificant and less important than those who have great stories and miracles to report. The signs are not the point. 
And they're often given as a grace to lead others to where you and I are sitting, at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let him work the miracles that he wants to work in the lives of others. But don't undervalue the miracle of your own salvation. Because you were once in Capernaum and received the gracious words that came out of Christ's mouth. And those words still speak to us today and will always speak. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gracious words that you have spoken to us. The word through whom you have made all things. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be satisfied in you, to not envy the exciting lives of others, but to sit and rest at your feet, to be thankful for the salvation and the gracious words that you have spoken to our hearts. And not that only, but help us to take these gracious words and speak them in your love and your grace to those all around us in the world. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.